Good morning. Good to see you this morning and good to be here this morning. I came over from Chicago, the Windy City. It appears that this is the Windy City. Uh, but nevertheless made it here. Glad to be here. They kept say, he kept saying, coming back. I, like, I was here like six years ago, so none of you even remember me coming and bringing a message, but I'm glad to be back here in Holland and here at Central. And if you have a Bible, take it out. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words will be on the screen as well. But if you have a Bible, you want to follow along. If you're a note taker, I have a pretty easy outline to follow as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to talk about our finest hour. Right now, the world is in a time of great turbulence and tumult, and I believe it's an opportunity for Christians to stand up, stand out, stand in the gap, show and share the love of Jesus in the midst of a broken and hurting world. We've already heard some about the, uh, I mean, Ukraine has been mentioned many times already in our message, uh, in our service thus far. Let me also add to that that our own countries were divided, and there's turbulence and tumult and more. I'd actually was, um, I sat down with my publisher in 2016, probably around the last time I was here, and my publisher said, well, your next book, what should your next book be on? And we kicked around some ideas, and they said, I think, they said, we think you should write a book on outrage. It was 2016, remember, very divided time politically, presidential election, a lot of people had a lot of strong opinions. They said, we think you should write on outrage. Now, the thing is, I mean, I got a full-time job. I work at Wheaton College full-time, which I've actually been told we have some Wheaties here on spring break. Shout out. Well, that was anticlimactic. That's it. <laughs> Not that excited about your school. Is it you guys over there are the Wheaties? All right, good. A little louder. Wheaties? Wow. Okay. All right. They're in hope territory, so they may be a little quieter about some of those things. I don't know. Anyway, so, um, so I work full-time at Wheaton College, so it's going to take me a year to write the book. So 2016, they said, Ed, write on outrage. It's going to take me a year to write the book. It takes a year to go through editing and publishing to get into a store. And I said to my publisher in the room, I still remember saying, yeah, guys, I'm not sure that in 2018 people are still going to be outraged. So maybe I should write a book on the topic. Well, they were right and I was wrong. Because the world seems to be on fire at multiple levels and in multiple ways, right? So, uh, but we're not the first people to live and the only people living in tumultuous and turbulent times. Here, Paul is writing to the church at a place called Corinth, a church that actually lived in a divided world, themselves had become somewhat divided, wrapped up in a lot of things that weren't honoring the Lord, and Paul the Apostle writes this letter to them. So it's the second letter we have, and he's kind of admonishing them, encouraging them to represent Jesus and his kingdom well. So I thought as we talked about this series, Our Finest Hour, we'd talk about this passage and what it means for us to walk in this finest hour. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is going to be our text. Uh, let me read it. We'll also have it on the screen. It says this, right? So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation, right? The old is gone. The new is here. Right? So don't want to miss that. The new is, is here. Um, and, and it says, um, it reminds us that all this, it says all this is from God, who has uh, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting people's sins against them. It goes on to say, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though Christ were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, 
be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There are four things today I want us to look at and walk through in this outline. Again, if you're a note taker, it's an easy outline to follow along. Four things we'll walk through. Number one on our outline is we get a new perspective. We get a new perspective. We have a new way of looking at the world, a new set of lenses through which we look at the world because of and connected to our new life in Christ. So we get a new perspective, number one, on our outline. So if that's the case, what does that look like? Right? Because I believe a new view of things and people will help us walk well in these divided times. A new view of the world and people will help us walk well in these divided times. Let's look at the passage itself. It says this. It says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Now, what's a worldly point of view? Well, I mean, it could mean a sinful point of view, probably some variation of that. But 2,000 years later, the world is trying to shape the way we think about other people, and it's working. Uh, All around us, people are finding themselves more angry, more upset, and more divided. And in the midst of that division, we can buy into the division that the world offers us, or we can see people differently. So from now on then, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We've got a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world, right? It says then, even if we've known Christ in that way, even if we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So maybe we misunderstood who Jesus was, we were seeing him through a worldly point of view, but not anymore. We now see things rightly. We've got a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we understand Christ, through which we understand the world, through which we see other people. Therefore, now whenever you're reading in the Bible and you see a therefore, you want to ask the question, what's it there for? What's it doing? Well, the word therefore here is actually connecting it before. It says, therefore, right, connecting it to what's before. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, there is, well, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. So now there's a new life, right? So we've got a new life, therefore, if anyone's in Christ. And this is one of those verses that many of you might have memorized earlier in your Christian life, if you're a memorizer of Scripture. Um, Maybe people make plaques out of these verses. These are magnets on people's refrigerators. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, there's new creation. The new creation has come. Now, why does that matter? Well, first, if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me say, we're so glad you're here, here at Central, whether you're watching online or with us in person. But I want you to also understand that maybe you came because you're in a difficult spot in your life and you say, I want to be a better person. I want to try harder and maybe religion would help me to be a better person. I want to say to you that when we understand the gospel, it's not actually about trying harder or being a good person. The gospel is not about turning over a new leaf. This verse reminds us it's not about turning over a new leaf. It's about receiving new life. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, there's new creation. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to follow him, to receive the new life he has for you by grace and by faith, and then you'll have a new life. That new life is connected to a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. And this is really important because right now, so much of the division around us, the division in the world, has seeped into the church, and people are feeling the tumult and the turbulence all around them. They're finding themselves being pulled and shaped by forces that are not discipling them in the way of Christian discipleship, not helping them to grow in the ways of showing and sharing the love of Jesus. As a matter of fact, we have a whole lot of people who are being 
discipled by their cable news choices. Now, I don't want you to miss this because that's all over the spectrum. I'm not just saying one, but they're being discipled by their cable news choices and spiritually shaped by their social media feed. And the end result is not that they're understanding in their new life, they've got a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which they see the world. They're not seeing the world through gospel lenses, but they're seeing the world through cable news lenses, and that doesn't end well for the follower of Jesus. We want to be be discipled by the Word of God among the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, focused on the gospel of God, so that we might make much of Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. So, if that's the case, this new life is connected to a new way of looking. We've got a new life, a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. And what we're going to be doing in this series called Our Finest Hour is helping you to reset those lenses to make sure that we represent Jesus and his kingdom well in a time of tumult and turbulence in our world today. We need new lenses through which we see the world. Now, you've noticed I've touched my glasses several times already. How many of you just say, I wear glasses too? Just be proud. I wear glasses too. Four eyes all over this place. That's what they called me when I was a kid. And I remember my mom came home and she said, Eddie, she called me Eddie and you may not. She said, Eddie, Eddie, you're going to be wearing glasses. And I was like, Mom, no. I was already kind of a nerdy kid, wasn't particularly popular in elementary school. And my mom said, you have to wear glasses. And I said, no, Mom, no. The kids will make fun of me. And she said, they will make fun of you. And she said, and then she kind of worked in. It's not just glasses, but I had to wear an eye patch. I said, Mom, it's going to be merciless. She said, Eddie, they're not going to make fun of you. They're going to think you're a pirate. They didn't think I was a pirate. Probably the first day I realized that my mother didn't always tell me the truth about everything. So not that long ago, Donna is my wife. I'm the father of three daughters, right? I have three daughters, and they are amazing. Uh, though they have so many words, but that's another story for another day. Um, but I love my daughters, and they're so super awesome. And uh, one in grad school, one in college, uh, one in high school. And so the one in high school, four years ago, she was in middle school. And Donna, my wife, comes home, and she says to me, Ed, um, she pulls me aside, like she's going to say something serious to me, and she says, Ed, listen, Caitlin, that's my youngest, my middle schooler at the time, she says, Caitlin's going to get glasses. I do not want you to make a big deal about this. I'm like, make a big deal? Me? So I put on my dad skills. I've got a unique set of skills. So I put on my unique set of skills, dad skills, and I go to Caitlin and say, Caitlin, so... um, Mom says you're going to get to wear glasses. He said, listen, that's, that's no big, that's awesome, Caitlin. You're going to get to wear glasses. That's fine. They're kind of fashionable today. You can pick all different kinds. And, and I'm trying to be super encouraging dad. And she is not buying it at all. So she says to me, now she's not allowed, in middle school, you know, she's not allowed to roll her eyes at her parents, right? We have a no eye rolling rule. But somehow my daughters seem to verbally roll their eyes with their words. So she says to me, Dad, that's the eye roll. You can actually feel the eye roll. Dad, Dad, glasses are fine. It's no big deal. And I'm like, really? She's, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. She says, I got my friends are going to the glasses store, whatever that is, and they're buying frames with non-prescription lenses in them because glasses are so fashionable, people want to wear them when they don't have to. And I'm like, oh, this 
is amazing. I'm so, I'm happy for her and simultaneously still a little bitter about my childhood experience with glasses. So I was like, that's great. But you see, I don't wear glasses for fashion. I wear glasses for, wait for it, seeing. So I put it on and you're back. I take it off and where did you go? So I wear my glasses so I can see. And so what happens is when I talk, right, when I talk, I talk, my head moves around a lot, my glasses get knocked around, and and when the glasses are knocked around too low, you can't see anymore. The focal length is bad. And this is where we find ourselves today. If we've got a set of gospel lenses, the last few years, we have all found ourselves in the midst of the turbulence and tumult, knocked around a lot, and we are going to take the next few weeks during our Finest Hour series, and we're going to readjust our gospel lenses so we can see rightfully the world around us. That's not always so easy. Um, but let me give you, tell you a story. So I was, the interim, I was the interim teaching pastor at a church in Chicago for four years, a church called the Moody Church uh, in downtown Chicago. Anyone actually visited the Moody Church in the course of, yeah, a bunch, bunch of you have. It's kind of well-known. It's a, it actually has a TripAdvisor tourist attraction rating. We don't approve of that, but they just put it out there and it's, you know, people come visit. And so I was the interim for four years, which is longer than three of their actual pastors were the pastor of that church. Not supposed to be interim for four years, but I was. It was time, took a long time to find a pastor. Pastor Erwin Lutzer was, um, he was the senior pastor. He became pastor emeritus, and we didn't use the word a lot, but he retired from being the senior pastor, so I was filling in. What I didn't realize was, I mean, Moody Church is a well-known church. What I didn't realize is how many people still watch. This is before COVID when streaming got really, really big. But every week, people from all over the world, because this church has been around 150 years, people went to this church in the 30s and the 40s, and, and now they're maybe in a senior adult community, or maybe they're a missionary in another part of the world, and they're watching Moody Church online. And so, you know, I, it was, it's a very traditional church. Uh, I don't know, very, it's a traditional church. So I, I wore a suit and tie at the beginning. They had a choir, full robes, an orchestra. And eventually, you know, when I was there longer and longer, I said, well, I'll, I'll make a few changes. So I, I didn't wear a tie every week. I, I, uh, I actually changed my attire a little bit. I, I didn't wear jeans because I don't think that would have been, they would have been ready for that. But I, because, uh, you know, we all see, people talk about what to wear in church. I actually have this one vibe I've got. I've got, because I'm a professor, right? So, so I've, I've, got the, uh, I've got the blazer and the shirt, which is kind of professional. And then I got the untucked shirt and the jeans, which is kind of like a party. So it's kind of a... It's like a ministry mullet, if you know what a mullet is. It's business in front and party in the back. So this is my attire. So eventually I, I didn't wear, I wore black jeans, but I got to the place. Not everyone liked it, right? So I had a pulpit. I went with a table. Not everyone liked it. And they would send letters. Now, it's a wonderful, amazing church, but we'd get these letters from people who would say, yeah, I don't like this, I don't like that. And it's like, okay, well, um, thanks. So, so one day I got, I'm going to show you in just a minute, not now, but in just a minute, I got the most amazing letter ever have I received. And uh, I actually, I got it on my phone. They forwarded it to me, so I got it on my phone. So I just literally uh, took a screenshot on my phone, uh, cut off the top, which said, Dear Pastor, to me my name, not generically. And the person actually signed the name too, which was, which was nice, and put it right there. And then this is the middle section. Let me, this is the actual screenshot. It's not the fanciest graphic. Let me read it to you unedited. Let's take a look. It says this, I listened to your August 13th sermon at Moody Church online. After listening to it once, I mean, that's cool, went through at least one time, I listened again, praise God, because I was awestruck. It gets even better 
I was awestruck with the number of times you adjusted your glasses while preaching. So the second time I listened, you can hear the passion growing in his voice, I saw in the first 36 minutes of your sermon, you adjust your glasses 74 times. You can hear the passion. And then you took them off, so I counted no further. He goes to get the calculator, it appears at this point. He says this was an average of once every 30 seconds. But the passion's back. But keep in mind, this is an incomplete count because some of the time scripture or your sermon was on the screen and I could not see you. Can you feel it? I tell you this in Christian love. Every mean letter in 30 years of ministry has that phrase in there somewhere. Not this was not mean. He was actually helping me. I actually adjusted things based on this. I tell you this in Christian love because I know you're interested in being aware of anything that may distract listeners from hearing what you're preaching and teaching and you feel the passion. So I hope you will accept this knowing that I want your ministry to be as effective for Christ as possible. I don't wear glasses for fashion. I wear glasses for seeing. And when I get excited, my glasses move around in my head. I literally bought a product after this email called Nerd Wax. I saw it on Shark Tank. And now I put a little Nerd Wax right here, and my glasses move around less. And I know a couple of you are going to come up to every church and say, well, I counted how many times you move your glasses. Don't be that guy. Nobody likes that guy. But I know someone's going to, that's fine, that's fine. But, but here's the thing I want you to see. When I get excited, my head moves, my glasses move, my vision gets out of focus. Sisters and brothers, for the last few years, the world seems to be on fire. We haven't seen a divided a time in this country in, since the 60s. We haven't seen as tumultuous a time in the world for a long time. The world seems on fire. The modern experiment is not holding. People are divided and angry, yet Jesus gives us a different way. He gives us a new life, a new way of looking, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. And over this series, we hope to adjust those gospel lenses so this indeed will be our finest hour. It matters. It matters. So here we find ourselves in a tumultuous and turbulent time. But we just sang for Christ to be magnified. That's what we want. That's what I want in your life. That's what we want in our church, for Christ to be magnified. We're going to need a redirection of our affection and get focused on the things that matter in our finest hour. A little later on, we're going to sing a song, So Will I. And I want to ask you to make it your prayer that you will join with sisters and brothers on a mission making much of Jesus, knowing that all creation will cry out, but right now, so will I. So number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Sent on a mission of reconciliation. Let's continue looking at the text. It says this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now, I want to stop there for just a second because while the verse is on the screen, I want you to listen to how many times the word reconcile comes up in these two short verses. It actually comes up again in the, the verse after this, but let's take a look at the pattern. 
All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Four times in two verses. Four times. But there's a pattern to it as well. The New Testament writers would sometimes employ something called parallelism. So it's actually making an emphasis. It's not rep- repetitive. If you're reading this scripture aloud, you might think you skipped the line. But it's really clear. It's you've been reconciled. Rec- we've been reconciled and then given the message of reconciliation. Again, it then says you've been reconciled and given the ministry of reconciliation. So we have received, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been reconciled to God through Christ, his work on the cross, dying for your sin and in your place. And now you're an agent or a minister of reconciliation. Reconciling the world to himself, using you as the message and the messenger. So we ourselves, I mean, it goes back 2,000 years, right? This, we've received this reconciliation from this message of reconciliation from somebody in our past. Might have been your parents, might have been your neighbor, right? Might have been a friend. So somebody, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. And somebody told somebody who told somebody who told somebody who told a whole bunch of somebodies. And then somebody told you. We're on a Great Commission highway that goes back 2,000 years. So it was a few years ago, Don and I were, I was actually going to speak at a conference in Florida. And it was cold. It was in the dead of the winter. And so I told Donna a few weeks ahead, I'm going to do this conference in Florida. And she said, um, as she often does in the dead of winter when I'm going to Florida, and you're taking me? So I said, sure. So we, um, it was just a quick conference, but we went down to, to Florida. But we called the Uber. The Uber driver came to get us. It's about 15 minutes from our house to O'Hare. Excuse me, about 30 minutes from our house to O'Hare. And so Jane was the Uber driver's name. And she, super friendly. When we get in, she's like, uh, Hey, welcome. My name's on the Uber. She says, hi, Ed. What's your name? Donna says, Donna. And says, well, you know, we, we, I've got water behind the seat in the seat pockets. I've got power cords if you need them. And, and take anything you want from the little basket at your feet. So between us, there was a basket. And in that basket, there were an assortment of candies and a strategically placed pocket New Testament. So we, su- we knew something was afoot. Something was about to happen. So I, uh, but we've been there for several years and nobody had had a spiritual conversation with us. Nobody had shared the gospel. It seems like sharing the gospel has fallen on hard times today. So, um, so I looked to Donna, and we had a conversation. Now, we had a conversation without words, because we've been married over 30 years, so we actually communicate telepathically at this point. <laughs> we actually don't need words. So I looked to her and communicated to her several sentences that went like this. Hey, let's, let's run with, let's have a little fun with this. Let's run with this. And let's not tell her. And she totally looks at me and she smiles in the way that she does. And she responded back telepathically, okay, but don't you take this too far. (laughs) Do you have that conversation with somebody in your family? We had that conversation. So Jane starts asking questions. She says, uh, so where are you from? And I'm from New York, outside of New York City, and Donna's from Canada. I said, oh, great, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you're used to the cold. Well, you know, I like the cold, you know, whatever. So, So she asks some different questions about, you know, Where'd you come before us? We lived in Nashville. We just moved up here. And, but then she, and there were a couple of questions I had to redirect her. She said, well, what do you do for a living? So I'm, you know, I'm a professor at Wheaton College. I actually teach evangelism and leadership. Now, last week I was teaching a class on evangelism and leadership. 
Um, so I, I had to redirect the conversation, but I wasn't going to lie. So I said, well, I'm a teacher. What about you? What do you do? So she says, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I, I drive some Uber, but I'm a real estate agent. I said, well, that's great. And so the conversation goes on, and then eventually she asks the question that, well, this is what she says. So do you guys have any, like, spiritual beliefs? And this is, we're 15 minutes in the conversation, right? So it's not inappropriate at all. But she's been leading to this point in the conversation. I've taught people to lead to this point in the conversation. So she says, so do you guys have any spiritual beliefs or maybe religious background or upbringing? And, and, and Donna looks at me and communicates telepathically, all right, that's enough. You have to tell her now. <laughs> you had that conversation, right? So I said, Jane, yes, actually, we're Christians. We're followers of Jesus. And I'm actually a professor. I teach evangelism. You are doing so great right now. A plus for Jane. So I actually said to her, right there, we're driving down the road. I said, Jane, we talked about two minutes. We had 15 minutes more to go. I said, can I just, can I record an interview with you right now? Because I love the fact that you are just lovingly and graciously leading us to a gospel conversation. She said, sure. And if you Google Jane the Uber driver, it's the number one thing that comes up. It got picked up kind of different places across the country. See, here's the thing. Jane knew she was on a Great Commission highway. Now, we were driving on a highway to the airport, but she knew that someone told her. Now, she had some free time as a realtor. She said to us later, oh, I actually drive Uber because I get to talk to people. And I said, well, Jane, does it like, does people get mad at you? She says, nope, nope. And you can look at her ratings, right? And you're like, she's got good Uber ratings. Right now, my rating is, you want to give someone a five. You want to get a five. My rating right now is 4.98, and I am wrecked by who did not give me a five. <laughs> I just wrecked me. But Jane is on a Great Commission highway. Somebody told her, someone told that person, someone told that person, and she's trying to tell people about Jesus. So we go to the airport. I eventually publish that interview. We fly down to Florida, and the next morning, Billy Graham dies. And we get the news. I'm actually at this meeting. I'm having breakfast with a group of board members from this group I was speaking to. One of them was Billy Graham's oldest grandson. We got the news kind of before it was public. And... Um, Fast forward to the funeral. We, like, we gathered there in Charlotte, North Carolina for the funeral. And the whole world watched. You probably watched some of it on television. It was streamed on multiple outlets. It was on the radio. If you listened on the radio, uh, it was me and another guy. We kind of were the voice and kind of explained what was going on. But million, the world stopped, right? Presidents came to pay respect, respects, right? He, he, lay, he lay in the rotunda and more. So, so Billy Graham's death was a global moment. And so the media was there. So it wasn't just a funeral where the gospel was clearly shared, but there was a, the media was there. And they came up after, I'm not sure it was before or after, but a reporter from the New York Times came, because I, you know, I lead the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. So the reporter comes up and in an appropriate way, either after or before, there were several on each side and with a notebook and started asking me questions. And they said, well, what do you think Billy Graham's legacy will be? And and they asked questions like, well, what do, you, what do you think his biggest impact was? And there were several questions, the normal questions. And, uh, and so, but then, you know, and they asked questions, you know, he's, I, I serve at his alma mater at Wheaton College. And so, but then, Lori is her name. She so asked the question, so who's the next Billy Graham? And so I was ready, right? She said, I mean, I, the other questions are ready, but this one I, I was ready too. She said, who's the next Billy Graham? And I said, Jane, the Uber driver. And she looked at me with this strange look, said, what do, you, what do you mean? And I explained that on the day before Billy Graham died, that somebody was trying to share the gospel message with me. And she smiled and said, well, that won't make the New York Times, but that's a great story. But it's a true story, and really it should be the true story of your life and mine. Because Billy Graham was on a Great Commission highway, 
I actually take people through the museum there at Wheaton College, and, and Billy Graham, when, they were, when the museum was originally built, Billy Graham, Mr. Graham, said it was too much about Billy Graham. He wanted to shrink the footprint of anything about Billy Graham, make it more about Jesus and evangelism. And as you walk through that, we take you through a 2,000-year history where somebody told somebody, told somebody who told somebody. And also, actually, Mordecai Ham marks the message when he responded. He was raised in a Christian home, but when Mordecai Ham preached, he heard the gospel, but somebody told Mordecai Ham, and somebody told him. And in this room today, or watching online, are some of you heard the gospel at a Billy Graham crusade, or it was your parents or your grandparents did, and one of the reasons you're a Christian today is Billy Graham told somebody who told somebody who told you, and the thing I don't want you to miss, right, if we're sent on a mission of reconciliation, if we've been reconciled and now have the message of reconciliation, and we have the good news of the gospel, all I'm saying is don't let your life be a cul-de-sac on God's great commission highway. Because for a lot of people, the tumult and the turbulence of the world has caused them to step back from people with whom they disagree, to expend their energy calling people that they disagree names and burning bridges that could be gospel opportunities and more. And what I want to say to you is the Lord Jesus has reconciled us, but he's given us a mission of reconciliation. And so what will we do? I don't want us to let our lives be a cul-de-sac on God's Great Commission Highway, right? So what can we do then? I think ultimately we can join with Christians over 2,000 years and ultimately all creation that is crying forth who God is. And we can say, and so will I. The song goes, we'll sing it later, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath. It says, if it all reveals your nature, so will I. This is the kind of thing we're called to do, is to reveal God's nature, and we see it in Scripture. He has reconciled us through Christ and given us the message and the ministry of reconciliation. Every painted sky, a canvas of your grace. If creation still obeys you, so will I. And in the midst of the cultural tumult and turbulence, it seems a lot of Christians have gotten off mission, and we need to get back to the clarity of what Jesus has called us to do. And so will I. The reminder before us is we get a new perspective, right? We've got a a new life, a new way of looking at the world and people, a new set of lenses through which we see the world. Sent on a mission of reconciliation. We've been reconciled by God through Christ and now given the message of reconciliation, the message and the ministry of reconciliation. So don't let your life be a cul-de-sac on God's Great Commission Highway. So number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Number three, and this is the heart of the passage, representing Jesus and his kingdom. So what am I here to represent? There's a whole lot of things that I could represent. Now, don't misunderstand. I mean, if you're a, a salesperson, you're representing your company, right? If you're, while well, you sell things, if you're, if you're uh, driving a truck, you're, you're, you're representing your company when people see you. And there's a lot of things we represent, but, but in the midst of all this, we have to make a decision. Who ultimately gets our greatest loyalty and the greatest focus? Number four, excuse me, number three in our outline, representing Jesus in his kingdom, says this. Let's look at the passage. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Now, the word ambassador is an unusual word in the Scripture. It's only used twice. And Paul's actually not talking about himself here, or he's talking about the group of people he's with and himself. And 
Yet for 2,000 years, Christians have actually taken the word ambassador and applied it to themselves, and I think rightfully so. We've heard a lot about ambassadors lately, right? Being an ambassador for a country and nation. Ambassadors are talking around the world. But we are ambassadors for Christ. So what does that mean, right? If we apply that to ourselves, as Paul was writing about himself and the missionaries he was with, it says, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Here it is the fifth time, be reconciled to God. Comes back to what we talked about before, right? We, got, we, we were on a mission of reconciliation. We've been reconciled and given this message and ministry of reconciliation. This is the call. To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness means we represent Jesus and his kingdom. You say, Ed, I, I, I'm busy doing a lot of other things, and I get it, right? Because I've seen, I've gone on social media of some Christians, which, which seems like a, a never-ending example of being focused on something other than Jesus. There, some of the angriest comments sometimes come from Christians, and I click on the link, and, and, and I click on the link, and then the bio says, Christian, follower of Jesus, you know, I love Jesus, and, and yet their social media is filled with Anger at people who differ. You say, Ed, i gotta, I got to stand up for certain things, and I know it's a question of how you do that, right? It's a question of why you do that. It's a question of how you communicate that. And if we're going to represent Jesus and his kingdom, you say, Ed, i got a right to say anything I want in social media. I'm just being frank. And I want to say to you, if your name's not Frank, stop. <laughs> and if your name's Frank, get it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You're called to represent Jesus and his kingdom. You want to stand out. The word ambassador is actually used twice in our English Bible, once here and another place in Ephesians 6 where Paul's writing. It's not on your screen, but Paul says, pray for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth, for I am an ambassador in chains. It's not always easy, and it's getting harder right now. We both, we all know that at work, sometimes people don't, un, don't appreciate the gospel message. We know that, that it's becoming increasingly difficult when our views and values differ more and more from the culture, yet Jesus has sent us on a mission. And can I tell you, for 2,000 years, Christians have walked through difficult, tumultuous times making much of Jesus. And so will I, and I hope so will you. So in doing so, we represent Jesus and his kingdom as an ambassador. So recently, we had a graduation. Um, I think it was, it was in the before time. So it was before COVID. That's why I've heard everything before COVID, the before time. Because um, I remember we were all sitting together. And, um, and the speakers were Wheaton College graduates, Andy, excuse me, Andrew and Noreen Brunson. You may know the name Andrew Brunson, Pastor Andrew Brunson, because he was imprisoned in Turkey. He was arrested on trumped-up charges to try to convince the Turkish leader, Erdogan, wanted to convince the U.S. to exchange somebody for him, someone they wanted to take back to Turkey. So he was just pastoring a church there in Turkey, um, doing gospel work, and, and all of a sudden the police come, take him away. Uh, she's released and advocates for him. Her name's Noreen, both Wheaton College grads, but he's in prison for two years, 
for two years in a Turkish prison. I want you not to miss this, right? So a, a cell built for two might have 40 men in it, many of whom hate him and hate the gospel. And there he was. And he talked about in this graduation, this commencement speech, it was, it was filled with joy and hope, but also filled with reality. And he said, I, I, they broke me. He said, on more than one occasion, I was broken. And I could feel it even in his voice. And he said, yet there I found the grace. There I found the strength. There the Holy Spirit worked. And he represented Jesus in a prison cell with 40 people who hated the gospel, yet that's where God called him to be. And he talked about, you might, you might get harder here. It's certainly getting harder in our culture. We haven't been persecuted like that, but, but the reality is getting harder in our culture and people are pushing back on the gospel and its truth. And so, but what was fascinating to watch him represent Jesus well in a prison for two years. And then, I mean, everyone was speaking up. The Congress was speaking up, the State Department, the White House, the President. And then he was released. And you saw it. It was national, global news. And because and he went from, I think they stopped in Germany to do a medical check, but he went from Turkey to Germany for a medical check. I was 36 hours, maybe 48 hours. He was there in the White House, and there he was. And he was, he was meeting with the President, and right there meeting with the President, he says, you, you can see it online, he, he says, can I kneel down and pray for you in our country? Right there, all the cameras are clicking. All the media is there. And he represented Jesus and his kingdom in a Turkish prison and in the Oval Office. Sisters and brothers, we don't know where that will take us, but we do know that Jesus has sent us on a mission to represent Jesus and his kingdom well, and so will I. And so will you. Number one, we get a new perspective. Number two, sent on a mission of reconciliation. Number three, representing Jesus and his kingdom. And number four, and finally, the cost of the cross. And I'll close with this. Of course, you know what it means when a guest speaker says, I'll close with this at the last service? Absolutely nothing. Just get that out there. <laughs> Hope you packed a lunch. But let's get to number four, because of the cross. The, verse kind of makes, the verses kind of make a change. It almost seems like a change in theme, but it's not. It explains so much. But look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, God made him who had no sin, so just so we're clear, God made Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin. So when Jesus died on the cross for your sin and in your place, he was actually made your sin. He was made sin for us. He died a sinner's death. He never sinned, but he died a sinner's death, and God placed on him our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself. So when he dies on the cross, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, it is finished. He dies. He has victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave because he takes our sin. But then it doesn't end there because now as followers of Jesus, just as our sin was received into him, his righteousness is now received into us. So when God sees you, he doesn't see, if you're a follower of Jesus, he doesn't see the sin you've done or the stupid things you've done. He sees Jesus' righteousness in you. So when God sees you, he sees Jesus' righteousness. Now where I come from, people would amen that statement. So I'm going to give you another opportunity. So when Jesus died on the cross, he took your sin upon himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And then as a follower of Jesus, God looks to you and he sees Christ's righteousness. Amen, Amen is right. So the cross changes everything. Everything. 
The man who knew no sin died a sinner's death, right? This is the substitution. Our sin is taken on Jesus. He takes the the, the penalty of that sin as a substitute. He was made sin, not a sinner, but sin for us. Isaiah 53, 6 puts it this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone his own way, but the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We sang for Christ to be magnified. Christ is magnified when we acknowledge what he has done on the cross for our sin and in our place. And then we see this verse and we think, thank God for the cross, but we don't end there because the verses that precede it matter. So thank God for the cross, but where does this fit in the passage? We get a new perspective. We got a new life, a new way of looking, new gospel lenses through which we see the world. And in our finest hour, we're going to walk through how to refocus those gospel lenses so we get a new perspective number two sent on a mission of reconciliation why because we don't want our lives to be a cul-de-sac on the great commission highway we're going to touch more on that in the weeks to come number three representing jesus and his kingdom and number four and finally we do all this because of the cross so for some we need a redirection of affection right now We've gotten caught up with the world's way of seeing and responding and reacting. And we're going to call for our finest hour to refocus again on the Jesus way. Notice the bracketed in him. This gives us the motivation for everything else. I love the song. We're about to sing that song, So Will I. And I love the beauty of that song because it reminds us of our call. So will I. Doesn't mean it's easy. That means it's easy in amidst a time of brokenness and a time of confusion, but it is the time that we step into what God has for us. As the worship team plays, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that in the midst of a tumultuous and turbulent time, you've called us to a different way, to a better way, to a Jesus way. Help us get a new perspective, knowing we've got a new life, a new way of looking, a new set of lenses. Help us to be living, sent on a mission of reconciliation, representing Jesus and his kingdom because of the cross. Lord, the world seems on fire at times, and we feel the division in our communities and our families and more. But Lord, we need your grace. We need your strength. We need this to be our finest hour because as the world's divided and broken, Jesus is the rock upon which we stand. When when all around us there's division and anger and brokenness, help us to make much of Jesus, to show and share his love. Joining with all creation and Christians over 2,000 years and God's people for millennia before, may we say, so will I. And may you ultimately be glorified. Just with your head bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment. You might need to do some work with the Lord even right now. You say, I got caught up in some of this stuff, Ed. My gospel lenses have been knocked about. I get it. It's been a hard few years. But this is going to be our finest hour when we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus and join Jesus on his mission. And I want to invite you, when we sing this song, not just to sing the words, but to actually make it your prayer. So will I. And in doing so, may we redirect our hearts and our affection so that ultimately we will represent Jesus and his kingdom. Would you stand with me even now? Let's stand together. Father, may you be glorified. May you guide us as we sing. Make it the words of our heart that speak the truths in our soul. We sing together. Let's sing.